So we're going to be taking phone calls today before we get started on the program. It's another one of those, oh, look what I just found on Twitter things at the start of the program. The Soviet Socialist uh, Republic of California has spoken, as uh, we all expected that it would, um, concerning uh, holiday gatherings in the great state of California, with a K. And um, remember, uh, on the last program, we pointed out a peer-reviewed paper uh, that has concluded that the mortality rate for COVID-19 for people under the age of 70 is 0.05%. For people under 70, uh, H1N1 and standard flu is 0.1%, which is twice what COVID-19's numbers are, below 70. And uh, yet, we have to keep the panic, have to keep everybody masked up, have to keep everything closed down. Well, what you're going to see, and what you're seeing coming in Europe right now, is the second full lockdown, which we, we tried to say March, it's May, June, tried to say in June, this will happen again in the fall. It is, for political reasons. And uh, it's coming again. And um, uh, the numbers are all against it, despite the inflation of those numbers. But despite all that, California. The, now, real quick, I'm going to be quick about this, but I, I need to talk about this because I'm, I'm distracted today. I'll be perfectly honest with you. The things that I've been seeing um, about isolation camps in Canada, <laughs> MPs having their microphones turned off while trying to ask questions about this in Canada, uh, it can't help but distract you. It's it's hard to not be distracted by this kind of insanity. Um, and then you have California. I don't know how you live there. I live way too close to it. I'll be perfectly honest with you. Um, I don't know what's going to happen in the future along those along those lines. Uh, but um, the state of California has released their guidelines, uh, and these aren't just guidelines. These are um, I, I read them. I had the website up. Let me see if I can, if I still have it here. No, that's not the one I want. Give me the right window, please. And it should be right here. Yeah. Um, California Department of Public Health. Um, and these are mandatory requirements uh, for all gatherings. Uh, must comply with the following requirements. This is not, these are not suggestions. This is the state saying you must do this. Uh, let me break them down. No more than three households can get, can get together. I'm not sure how you exactly determine that, but three, no more than three households for no longer than two hours. No longer than two hours. And you can't do it inside. It must be outside. So um, no more than three households, no more than two hours. Must be outside. Everyone must wear their sign of submission to Big Brother, also known as a face diaper. Um, And, of course, you must stay the magical six feet apart. So that means you're going to throw your Christmas presents to your kids six feet apart. Or at least if it's like your cousin, that's a different household, then you you, you throw the presents at each other because you can't get any closer than six feet any direction from one another. Are you ready for this? Food should be in single-serving containers. You heard me correctly. 
Food should be in single serving containers. Um, yeah, good luck with that one. I, yeah, okay. And no singing, no chanting, and no exertion. This is the state of California about a disease with a 0.05 mortality rate under the age of 70. Um, and I keep saying that because we, it's, the, it's the hypocrisy. It's the, we've never done this with anything else. There are worse diseases. This is not the plague. But these are how Marxists create unhappiness and division. And this is California. And if what happened, if, if what the polls say are going to happen on November 3rd takes place, this will be the entire United States. Because California is a one-party state. Are there Republicans in California? Sure. Do they have any role in what happens in California? Nope. Not a shred. Not a bit. Uh, once the leftists take over, they change the rules so they can never lose power again. And that's what's going to happen. Uh, that's what's going to take place um, when you have two new states added uh, to the United States. Both That brings in four Democratic senators. That way they've always got the Senate. Get rid of the filibuster. Pack the court. The real pack the court. Not the, wow. I mean, there is nothing that can't be redefined today, right? So now... Packing the court, everybody always know. everyone has known since FDR what packing the court meant. Now it's been redefined. Uh, so if you actually fill the ninth justice, according to the Constitution, that's now called packing the court. Uh, absolutely astonishing. So you pack the court so you don't have the Constitution to, uh, to worry about any longer. And it's done. It's done. We, we literally, literally, literally are a matter of weeks away from burying the Constitution of the United States. Done. Finished. And as I said on Facebook this morning, and um, Doug Wilson said it in an excellent uh, blog and May blog article that he did, uh, I don't know, less than a week ago. I think it was called Nine Miles a Bad Road or something like that. Um, But he said, what we're voting about on November 3rd is whether we will ever vote again. That's what it is. Because if you vote for socialism, that's it. That's your last vote. You now have it. And as it has been said over and over again, because it's true, you vote socialism in, you shoot to get out of it. You don't vote it out. You never have that opportunity again. Socialists do not allow themselves to lose power. Look at California. And that's what we're facing. So every one of you over at TGC and, and, and ERLC and all you guys doing all you can to salve people's consciences so that they can vote for baby murder and transgenderism and the profaning of marriage and, and just say, well, it, that's just the same as social programs. All you folks over there, hey, once you no longer can do anything at all, once you no longer have any rights, you vote them away and you did it purposefully. And you did it with the rest of us trying to yell and scream and jump up and down and say, don't you see what you're doing? Not that it's going to make us feel any better to be able to go, we told you so. But we will tell you, we told you so. We told you so. So there you go. Uh, 
I am going to tell you right now, I'm going to try to make sure we have many more than three households to get together for Thanksgiving and Christmas if we are not in the middle of street warfare at that particular point in time, which is possible. Um, uh, we're going to go a lot longer than two hours. All kids want to go longer than two hours, so we're going to, especially on Christmas, um, uh, we're going to be inside and outside because in Phoenix it'll probably be, given this year, it'll probably be about 84. <laughs> Set all new records. Why not? I mean, it's 2020. We've, we've shattered almost every single heat record to be had. Um, but we're going we're gonna to be inside, and um, in, in where, wherever I am, if it's my family, and I am currently the oldest person in my family in the Valley, which means I'm in charge. And that means any face diaper that even walks through the door will be burned instantly. I'm just telling you right that right now. No face diapers will be allowed. I'm, I'm putting my foot down. That's it. No face diapers. There will be hugging. Uh, there will be hugging, and, and there will be more hugging than Scottish people should be allowed to do. But we're going to do it because William Wallace would do it if he was told not to do it. Um, and, and if my Claymore stabs you in the side, just tough it out. You'll, you'll be all right. Uh, food should be in single-serving containers. Nope. We're going to have a big old single bowl of my dad's dressing. It won't be my dad's dressing. It's never as good as my dad's dressing, but I got, I've gotten close a few times. But it's going to be one big single bowl with all the super good, buttery, extra crispy stuff on the top. And it, there will be no single serving containers allowed. None at all. And no singing, chanting, or exertion. We are going to run around like a bunch of Pentecostal charismatics and exert ourselves horribly. And we are going to sing. We might even learn to chant just simply to break that one, too. And we will sing and chant toward the California border, just to make sure. Yes, sir? So I'm in Home Depot the other day in the garden department, and I look over and I see a picture of a lady, and she's gardening. She's got her gardening tools out and her gardening gloves on. You know what she's wearing as she's facing this plant? A mask. A mask and probably a face shield and um, gowns and booties and has three bottles of hand sanitizer nearby. Because we don't want to give it to the plant. <laughs> it's enough to make you believe in the black helicopters. It really... We have seen the black helicopters, but that's because we're in Arizona and there's lots of airspace around here. So that's pretty much the reason for that. But uh, you can go. I, I'm looking at the website, California Pu Department of Public Health, um, under COVID-19, CDPH guideline guidance uh, for um, private gatherings. And um, I, I, I don't I – don't, I don't even know what to say, but, hey, you guys – um, I, let's let's take some phone calls. Uh, let's talk to Devante. Hello, Devante. Hello. How are you today? Doing good. Well, I'm here. <laughs> I, I thought about that question as soon as I just realized I just listened to you talk about what you did for ten minutes. Um, so recently, I have been uh, studying Roman Catholicism. And you have been a very tremendous help. And 
I'm just looking for if you hear something in the background. I'm sorry, that's my son. Well, um, uh, we we I, at, at at Apologia Church, we are a family integrated church, and what we like to say uh, is that if uh, children make age appropriate vocalizations, that's perfectly fine. <laughs> okay, my wife's taking them to the back. That's um, all right. Um, I'm looking because in in your talks, um, you will often just like mention like uh, like uh, primary sources from Roman Catholicism, like you talk about, uh, you know, canons at the Fourth Lateran Council, or you're talking about the pseudo Isidorian decretals, which I had never heard of, um, <laughs> or or you're talking about, you know, certain people like William Whitaker who wrote about. Roman Catholicism. Yep. And my 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 question is just: Can you give me any resources, contemporary or, um, you know, for my brothers and sisters who are no longer here, that uh, address Roman Catholicism? Because specifically, like, um, you know, like major doctrines that Roman Catholics currently believe in. For example, like their view on, uh, you know, tradition, authority, and the magisterium, or they're what they teach on purgatory or indulgences or, or something like that. I know you have a book. I haven't gotten it. Well, um, I used to, and I don't know if you're watching or not, but um, I, I, I used to be able to just sort of hold this up, the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and say, all right, this is a good starting place. It, it has some references. Uh, the, the the problem is uh, even when this was produced, um, you already had such a wide variety of viewpoints being expressed by what is called the magisterium of the church. That this is one of the this is one of the toughest things to deal with is you have just as wide, if not a wider range of perspectives and understandings expressed by people who are even regularly attending a Roman Catholic church, as you have in Protestantism. You really do. I mean, I've often said that if you listen, for example, to EWTN, you're going to be getting primarily very uh, conservative, old-style Roman Catholicism from most of those types of people. You go over to Boston College and listen to the priests teaching at Boston College, and you'll hardly even recognize a connection between the two. Other than the fact they're using the same words, they clearly mean completely different things. And so the, the, the problem is to be able to identify, you know, basically what I would say is if you look back uh, into the 1850s, uh, maybe up through uh, the the First Vatican Council, and you look at some of the plain, clear language that was used by popes at that time, and in, in like the papal syllabus of errors, and and that's one of the most useful documents. And again, all this is available online. Uh, papal syllabus of errors, the Catechisms of Catholic Churches at the Vatican website. Uh, they're all available for free. Um, but if you read something like the Papal Syllabus of Errors, that is extremely useful because it's laying out what the church at that time was saying was wrong in what other people were saying. And that's, that sometimes can be extremely helpful. It's sort of like reading Isaiah 40-48, where the prophet is going after the false gods. You learn a lot about the true God by the way the true God's prophets go after false gods, because they 
compare and contrast true against false. Same thing with the papal syllabus of errors. What you look at what the popes were teaching then, you trace that back through history, um, and that can become sort of a, a lens through which to read what came before, and, and you find a consistency there. There's, there's a consistent uh, body that goes back to about the Fourth Lateran Council. There, it, it, I mean, sure, there's some development over time, yeah, but there's, there's a core there. Um, I don't see that core in the current pope. I really don't. I, I don't see that core in a number of the archbishops, the cardinals, uh, especially the people that Francis is putting positions of authority. I don't see that core uh, in, the, in the papal biblical commission. Um, and so you've got a really wide variety of perspectives and, and beliefs being presented. The Universal Catechism can still give you, you know, a general idea but uh, there was a significantly, I would call it a significantly tighter interpretation of that catechism from the time it came out through Ratzinger's uh, pontificate. And now with Francis, it's, it's all over the map. And so it's one thing to, to go back and say, okay, the Fourth Lateran Council said this, and we can tell because of what people were saying at the time, because of... Uh, you know, we have the writings of the of the of the bishops that that attended that council and how they interpreted things. You can go back and go, yeah, this is this is what they meant. This is what they were saying. It's it's pretty straightforward. But the problem with having, um, you know, it, it's sort of like years ago. Uh, I remember criticizing Robertson Genis about something, and I pointed out that he seemed to be out of uh, touch, out of step with uh, maybe the current. Bishop of Rome or whoever it was, which he is on a few things. And his, his response when I pointed out contradictions between what the church had taught, what it teaches now, is, but James, only the church can interpret the church. So in other words, the, the current living voice is the final authority because they can, only they can interpret what the church has taught in the past even if they interpret it in the exact opposite way of the original people who wrote the words. So it, it becomes a, a, a chameleon. It can become whatever it wants when you adopt that kind of an of a idea of authority. It, it, so it doesn't, it doesn't really help at all. So as you mentioned, some of the books like by George Salmon, The Infallibility of the Church, uh, William Whitaker's works, things like that. Those are older works, and they interact with the Roman Catholicism of their day. That's also helpful in being able to see how Rome has changed since that time period as well. Um, though, let's be honest, any opposition to Rome could have bias in it as well. We're not going to claim some type of absolute perfection for even books that we found very useful. But in general, still, um, what, you, what you see is a huge amount of development. So when you're talking to Roman Catholics, you've got to find out where they are. Where do they stand in this spectrum? And how do they interpret these things? And it can make it very, very challenging to be able to have a meaningful doctrinal conversation with someone. Um, because is this, a, is this a conservative, believing, orthodox, no, I'm not with Francis, I'm just sort of enduring him because he's going to go away eventually, and I'm just going to continue to hope and pray that the next guy that gets in will be chosen by God and will take us back to where we're supposed to be type perspective? Um, or what if the guy, that, what if Francis resigns and you get a, you get a, a third living pope who is to the left of Francis. 
Now what do you do? Uh, that really, I think, is what keeps a lot of Roman Catholic apologists up at night uh, in a cold sweat. Because Francis has been enough of a disaster. If Francis were to, to resign and somebody else were to, to come in um, who is even farther that direction, wow. But you also have the other problem is, what if he resigns? Because the precedent has now been set in modern times with, with Ratzinger uh, resigning. Uh, what if he resigns and the next guy is a knee-jerk reaction back the other direction? What does that do to the whole idea of having an infallible leader to whom you can look for consistent interpretation and, and understanding of Catholic truth? So it's a, it, it's a, it's a difficult day uh, for Rome on that level. I, I've wondered if that might not be part of the reason why we're hearing more and more about Eastern Orthodoxy, is you always have people who have been raised within Protestant churches who don't know anything about the other side, and, and they, they get burned or they get tired of their church experience, and all of a sudden they discover the, the ancient church standing in the midst of time. And the problem is right now, that ancient church, if you're a Roman Catholic, uh, has a very, 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 very modern-sounding head, um, who's pretty much just a Marxist uh, and uh, clearly does not believe what the popes be- before him believed on all sorts of uh, all sorts of issues, let alone 150 years ago. But I mean, there's differences clearly between he and Ratzinger. Um, so uh, that's maybe maybe why there's a little bit more attention being paid toward uh, Eastern Orthodoxy. So. Uh, so yeah, it's a changing situation. That's 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 the problem. You you can't. Uh, it would be sort of foolish to write much in the way of in depth books responding to Francis right now. He's not going to be around all that long. Um, and and who who's going to come up next? Uh, where are they going to be coming from? It's 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 hard to say. So the historical works, like I said, the Universal Catechism has a um, companion volume that I don't think I have in the studio here, but there's a, there's a companion volume that goes along with it that has all the documents that are cited in this. And so that would give you uh, a whole bunch of the stuff right there, and then there are bibliographies that you can follow from there, uh, right there. I don't know if, I don't remember if that volume is available electronically or not, because uh, I've had it in paper for so long I've never really looked, but it, it might be. It's possible. I think it's called a compendium of documents cited in the Universal Catholic Catechism of the Catholic Church, or something something along those lines. Um, but there's lots of lots of good resources uh, to be found along those lines. So is that is that helpful at all? Yes, brother, it is. I've um, it's it's just been frustrating at times <laughs> when um when uh, reading or dialoguing with some Roman Catholics. Right. Just because of certain, to be honest, which I've told them, I feel like many times the the basis of the argument is pretty much essentially, even if they don't say it is, because the church says. Yeah. Even if that's not, for example, I was talking with someone who was Roman Catholic and he asked me, well, why do you believe the Bible? And I said, well, ultimately because the Holy Spirit regenerated my heart and told me that is true, but we could talk about philosophy or logic or something. He said, well, that's very subjective. So I said, okay, you're telling me that's too subjective. What should, what should I have said? 
And I honestly feel like what he wanted to say was insert something about the church, but he didn't say that. He mm-hmm. said, well, I'm not sure. I was like, well, <laughs> if you're going to tell me that, <laughs> that what I said was too subjective, I think you have something in mind. I think you just don't want to say it, to be honest. Well, yeah, if you listen, if you listen to EWTN, uh, the thing that strikes you when you listen to Catholic radio, Catholic television, I don't do it a lot, but I do it once in a while just to sort of see who's getting as old as I am, and, and there are a lot of guys out there that are, that are you know, up in, in my years now uh, that I engaged with years and years ago. Uh, but what you, the one thing that strikes you immediately is how much more often you will hear central to the conversation, basically a conversion to the church. And so the church says this and the church says that. That's what's problematic right now, because what the church said in the 1990s is not what the church is saying in 2020. And that's the problem. Uh, when, when I first started doing Roman Catholic apologetics, John Paul II had been Pope forever. I mean, he had a long pontificate, and that provided a consistency, a level of consistency. I mean, I, even during that time, pointed out that one year he'd say something liberal in, a, in an encyclical, and the next year he'd throw a bone to the, to the conservatives. And it was very clear he was trying to keep a very widely divergent group sort of headed the general same direction. Uh, but you, you had one guy. And so it wasn't wild. It wasn't a wild and crazy ride, uh, but that has that has now changed. And uh, it's. It, it, but you'll hear that centrality of the church, not in the sense of the universal church of history, but the church as it is embodied in Rome, as being the final answer to many of those questions. And I think you're correct in in recognizing that. So. Um, but anyways, uh, check out the Universal Catechism, the, the, the uh, compendium that goes with it. That's going to give you a good, solid foundation for a lot of the foundational documents you're looking for. Okay? Yes, okay. sir. All Thank right. you very much. Thank you down there in Texas, one of the land of the free uh, down there. Hopefully stay <laughs> that way. <laughs> All right. God bless. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, um, hmm. I see that line two is a problem, so I think I'm supposed to go to line three next. And let's talk with uh, Ryan, also in the land of the free. Uh, we're all hoping you all are going to hold on down there because we may all have to flee there. I, I hope you got. I hope you got some room for us. Hello, Doctor Wayne. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you. I'm a huge fan, uh, and I thank you for what you do. And I've read your books and all, and uh, I wanted to uh, I wanted to ask about a uh, video that I saw like a month ago or so. It was posted about uh, like a few years ago it, it, by a guy named VaticanCatholic.com, <laughs> and it was titled "Protestantism's Big Justification Lie." Uh-huh. Um, and I watched uh, like half of it, the first half of it, and he tried to argue from Titus three five. It says that he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. And his argument there was that it says that since justification includes the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, that refutes the idea that regeneration and justification are distinct, and therefore you have the Catholic view. And I know that there's something wrong with that, but I couldn't, like... How would you respond to that? Yeah, well, I, I would suggest uh, looking up Titus 3.5 at uh, aomin.org. I'm fairly certain that I'm remembering uh, correctly uh, the fact that... Um, uh, Rich, check this out for me. My recollection is that Brother Porter uh, 
wrote uh, an article on uh, the exegesis of Titus 3.5 in that context at some point uh, in the long distant uh, past, and uh, Titus 3.5 has not changed uh, whatsoever. I should mention while Rich is looking at that, that the particular uh, video that you're looking at is from a aberrant non-Orthodox Roman Catholic group. They are, they are, right. they're off on their own. They're their own little popes. And yes. um, there is, I do know, a uh, extensive uh, discussion uh, between myself and I think there's, I think they're called the Diamond Brothers or something like that. And yeah, and uh Brother John Mary, I think, was uh, was the guy that I had the uh, interaction with. It was fairly extensive, and it's still in the Roman Catholic archives on the website. And yes, okay. Uh, so you, if you look up "not by works at all" uh, at aomin.org, you'll find a um, article. And was I right? Was it Mike uh, by Mike Porter, uh, who is was a student of mine years and years ago. Uh, what are you laughing about? Okay, so this is from uh, 20 years ago. <laughs> um, so, uh, Brother Mike's still with us, uh, but uh, uh, that, that'll give you a longer, more in-depth uh, exegesis as far as Titus 3 goes. Uh, but these guys are... Uh, I My recollection is that in my exchange, this is well over 20 years ago that I had the initial exchange, um, my recollection is that they might even be have a Feniite strain to them. I'm not sure if you know what Feniism is, but um, to where they do not believe that anyone who is not a Roman Catholic can possibly be saved, which has historical precedent, obviously, but goes against the modern Roman Catholic understanding of these uh, particular things. So their doctrine of justification is not going to be consistent even with um, Ratzinger or John Paul II, uh, I'm not even, I mean, it's really easy to say it's not going to be consistent with Francis because uh, who knows what his doctrine of justification is. But uh, looking to uh, Titus chapter 3, just very briefly, but when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. going to move my uh, Bible program over here. Uh, what? Yeah, yeah, Brother John Mary. That'll, that'll pull it up. Yeah, I said. Um, not, and so, uh, God our Savior, verse, uh, uh, verse 4, Uc ex ergon, not by works uh, the done, which were done in righteousness, which we did in righteousness, but according to his mercy. So, you have uh, Uc and Allah in the original language pr- producing a, uh, a contrast, not in this fashion, that is, works done in righteousness, which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, he saved us, and then dia is the mechanism that he utilizes, which is lutru polingenesias, so there is the washing of regeneration, chi, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So my assumption is what they do is they make the argument that that is a human action, that it it flows from the action of human beings, free will, doing baptism in a sacramentally uh, appropriate fashion. 
Um, the problem is that you'll notice uh, that his continuing statement, the, whatever the washing regeneration is, it is intimately connected with the renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is a spiritual action. Whom, when the Holy Spirit is mentioned, whom he poured out upon us, Plusios, richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, in order that having been justified by his grace, we might be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, as is always the case with sinful mankind, and as is always the case in post-Tridentine, that is, post-Council of Trent, really post-Fourth Lateran Council, Roman Catholicism, you no longer have a, a true biblical view of man. Uh, it, took, it took a long time to get rid of all of Augustine's influence as far as seeing man as dead in sin and so on and so forth, but the entire, satir- the entire sacramental system of the Roman Catholic Church assumes man's capacity to cooperate by free will. Now, they may throw in prevenient grace, the more Augustinian they are, but prevenient grace is not biblical grace, and prevenient grace is, is not God's grace. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's an idea meant to cobble together man's free will in light of the Bible's teaching of man's deadness and sin. So, the point is that the identification that is made is you have to read into Titus chapter 3, the idea that you have a sacramental free will act that is being described by the phrase lutru palingenesias, the washing of regeneration, kai and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm again, I'm sure that Mike expanded upon this in, in the article. I recall it was a fine article. But that is not a disjunctive chi. That is a conjunctive chi. That is, you cannot say, well, the washing regeneration is infant baptism done in the name of the Trinity. Uh, and then the renewing of the Holy Spirit is something completely different. Because we all know in Roman Catholicism that the idea is that when you are validly baptized, you are justified, and your sins are forgiven, um, and we all know that the regular experience of Roman Catholicism in regards to that is that they have a bunch of totally unregenerate people who think they've been regenerated. There's, there's no renewal of the Holy Spirit. Look at where the same author, Paul, talks about the renewing of the Holy Spirit in Colossians chapter 3. What is the result of that? And did he, in Colossians chapter 3, attach that to some sacramental performance? He did not. Instead, what you have, which is consistent with Pauline theology, is that the washing regeneration, the background of that um, goes back to chapter 2 in Titus, where you have uh, this incredible uh, statement. Actually, it's barely, what is this? what, maybe three sentences earlier? Four sentences earlier? 2.13, looking for, well, backing up here, if you want to look at verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, 
looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, not going into all the details here, here Paul is drawing from Old Testament language about Yahweh's forming of a special people, a covenant people for himself. And now he attaches it to Yahweh coming in the person of Jesus Christ, who describes our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And how he gave himself for us to do what? To redeem us from every lawless deed. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So this is his work. This is Yahweh's work. And this grace that is introduced in verse 11 teaches us how to live sensibly, how to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. This is all coming from God. There is no sacramentalism here. There is no system that developed hundreds of years later here. This is God forming a people for himself. And in chapter 3, the continuation of that is simply, it's the Spirit of God who raises us to life. He is the one who regenerates us. He is the one who brings this to reality in our life. And therefore, having been justified by grace, not grace channeled through sacraments, but grace that is powerful to actually accomplish what it intends to accomplish. That's the difference. You're really touching here upon the difference between biblical Christianity and the shadow that is Roman Catholicism that fundamentally robs the gospel of its power because of its emphasis upon sacramentalism and the control that mankind has of the grace of God by his own will through sacramentalism. That is really... Um, as I said in the Roman Catholic controversy, this is the issue. The issue is the gospel between us and Rome. There's all sorts of other issues, Mary and the Pope and things like that, but what, what creates the dividing wall that must be dealt with, as much as we wish it wouldn't be there, as much as we would love to hold hands and fight for the same things because we share so much in common, if you don't share this in common, you don't share the rest in reality. That's the problem. That's the problem, is that very issue. So, there you go. All right. Um, well, I would say that uh, that answers it, and I, uh, I'll go and take a look at that article. Uh, you said to just uh, look up uh, Not By Works At All on AO. Not By Works At All, and then also a Brother, just put in John Mary, uh, and the, the, okay. those, are two, those are two different articles. The, the one is a very lengthy, I had more time. Um, or I didn't sleep as much, or something, or I typed faster. I'm not sure, but <laughs> it was a very lengthy exchange with that same group that eventually put that uh, that particular video out. All righty. Um, well, thank you very much, Dr. White. I uh, appreciate it. Okay, keep the lights on. The door's open for us down there in Texas in case we have to flee your direction. <laughs> yes, sir, will do. <laughs> All right, thanks. God bless. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. <laughs> Uh, man, I hate having to say that. <laughs> it's really true. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Uh, let's talk with uh, Chris. Hi, Chris. How you doing, Dr. White? Thank D- you for taking my call. Mm-hmm. So my question is, and if uh, this is a kind of a thing that came out maybe a year, year and a half ago, uh, two years ago, so, you know, you may not have read it, much into it, and that's fine, but it's on if you've heard of 1689 federalism, mm-hmm. it's a it's a covenant theology position 
Um, and so I was going to ask if you had known anything about it. Read uh, Sam Renahan had written a book, um, and a couple other guys that I, I well respect, uh, Jim Renahan and um, Richard Barsalis. These are some really good guys. I, I met them, you know, great saints, and benefited greatly from their work and their ministry. But I was wondering if you had known anything about that or read anything on it, and because uh, it, it, it differs a lot on, of course, the traditional. Uh, position of covenant theology, whereas, of course, we're different from the Pres- Presbyterian's position of uh, the or- the administration of the ordinances and things like that. But I was wondering if you knew anything about that, or uh, if you had read it and thought yeah. anything about it, and just wanted to see your take on it. Yeah, I've uh, I've actually avoided it for a couple of reasons. Uh, I was introduced to it in the worst possible way. Uh, a young man uh, who had started reading on it, um, uh, well, I was an elder in Reformed Baptist Church for a long period of time before I ever even heard the the terms. So it came about from a um, uh, revitalized interest in the writings of the framers of the 1689 and the conclusion on the part of many that the position that they took uh, was not the position that Reformed Baptists had been taking basically this entire century. And that, in fact, uh, in essence, their, um, from their perspective, the position that uh, certainly I had been taught and that I had been taking and that every Reformed Baptist that I knew up until only... 2010, maybe, uh, maybe even later than that, but somewhere around in that time period, I, uh, I'd never even heard of any other perspective amongst Reformed Baptists, but the idea now is that wasn't the position of the framers, okay? The way it was presented to me at the time uh, was that uh, Abraham was in the New Covenant, and that all the elect uh, are, in fact, in uh, the New Covenant, um, and that that's sort of a if – you, if you know all of the arguments that go back and forth on minutiae in regards to Noahic covenants and Abrahamic covenants and Mosaic covenants and um, how all of them relate to one another and uh, how they come into – the, the new covenant and what fulfillments are, and uh, obviously a lot of it has to do with uh, what was the nature of circumcision. Circumcision is a part of what covenant, uh, how the covenant promises map on top of each other, how they become fulfilled in Christ. And it's incredibly complicated. And to be honest with you, pretty much every book you're going to read is going to have its own uh, flavor as to exactly where it comes down on a tremendous number of secondary issues that, honestly, there are deep, dark Facebook groups that, uh, that people spend their entire lives uh, arguing over the very small minutiae of, um, of exactly how to map all of those things out. But basically, um, uh, at that time, I, I was like, well, you know, it, the way that it was presented to me anyways, I said, if that's the case, then the writer of the, Hebrew, the, writer of the Hebrews missed the biggest argument he ever could have made for the supremacy of the work of Christ. And I, I don't get that. Um, and because, and I, and I, I fault myself for this, 
but because of the uh, arrogance and immaturity of the person that presented it to me and the way he did it, I was just like, I'm just not even interested in. Okay, I'm just, I'm just, I'm not even going to stick my nose in, in that. Uh, I asked at the time, I asked my fellow elders uh, in a church, have you guys heard anything? They're like, never heard of it. Brand, brand new to us. Okay, doesn't make it wrong. And I suppose um, when I get thrown the hooskow in the not too distant future. Maybe I'll have time to read up on it um, if, if you're allowed to read books uh, in the Huskow. Uh, and, and so I'm not saying that I'm going to arrange a debate on it because I don't know enough about it to debate it. I just know that the first thing that struck me as I listened to it, it the first thought across my mind was just this. When you are a Baptist, well, let me, let me back up the truck one more one more time. Um, are you familiar with New Covenant theology? I am. I'm sorry. Yes, I am very familiar with it. Okay, um, that to me was a reaction to uh, the Presbyterian understanding of covenant theology from people who are. Reformed and have uh, Reformed commitments, and yet it was an overreaction. It was um, it was there's there's always a desire to um, clearly distinguish your position when you're in the minority from the majority position because it's easier for you to convince people to join your group when it's clearly differentiated where you agree and where you disagree. And so, uh, from my perspective, the New Covenant guys were out of balance. I mean, it became really out of balance when you had people saying, everything has to be repeated in the New Covenant, and so, you know, since there's no prohibition against marrying your sister, you can marry your sister. I mean, that's when it goes, whoosh, right off, right off the cliff. But, but it was moving that direction um, because of the fundamental assumptions that were being made. So, in other words, good people uh, can overreact to a majority position. And what struck me is if you've got an argument that would be that killer, um, why isn't it used in Scripture? And so what struck me is I've always got to be aware of the fact that even those that I identify with and, and, and I'm so thankful for and learn so much from can sometimes pull a little hard on the tug-of-war rope and maybe become a little imbalanced. Um, I haven't seen any reason uh, as of yet to um, abandon the arguments that I've made in the past in regards to such issues as baptism. Maybe since I'm going to be doing a series on baptism over the next number of months at Apologia, maybe that will give me uh, the opportunity. Uh, you know, maybe I can get Richard or somebody to send me uh, a 15-page paper uh, that I can uh, digitize and, and look at. And maybe what was presented to me was just presented to me so poorly and so badly uh, that maybe there's something there. But that's that's where I've I've been and fault me for uh, you know being willing to 
to say, hey, since it was presented to me so badly, I'm not going to waste my time on it. Uh, I could be faulted for that. But that's that's been my experience. Well, I understand. There's books are being written every day, and uh, to keep up with the ones who have written and are now gone, and the ones that are continuing to be put forth, is very, it's a very difficult thing. So, no. But I sure appreciate your uh, your weigh in on that. Thank you, Doctor White. And I appreciate yeah, well, your ministry. Yeah. Well, obviously, I, I I would hope that it would not be something that would result in um, some kind of uh, division. Though I'll be perfectly honest with you, um, the, the fact that Reformed Baptists are still Baptists means we can divide over almost anything. And uh, that's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. So, anyways, thanks, Chris. No, no. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. All right. God bless. Bye-bye. All right. I'm not trusting line two. I'm, I'm hoping, because you've had problems with it. Let, let's hope that it, that it works here. Let's talk, about, let's talk with uh, Michael. Hi, Michael. Michael? Hello, Michael. See? What is wrong with what is wrong with long line two? We're trying to talk to Michael in Florida, and now Rich is picking up the, the line to see if he can uh, talk to Michael uh, in Florida as well. And uh, we got nothing. Oh, I've got a green green light now, maybe. Oh, okay. All right. Well, if uh, you want to you wanna free up online and see if uh, Michael can call back in, uh, Michael, if you can give us a call back in, um, Rachel will un- unbusy a line uh, because we've still got 10 minutes. So uh, if Michael would like to call back in, uh, we've got, a, got the call right now. This is not how he's we're actually We're actually talking about before the program that we're going to have to replace this uh, phone system, which we've had for 47 million years. And you know why? Because they're dropping Flash, and it's based on Flash. And evidently, it's called Comrex Stack, and evidently they're not going to uh, update it. They're not. They're well. Okay, they're going to do what all, pro, all they're going to do what everybody in software does today. I don't know if you've noticed it, but like I was trying to. Nobody saw the little video that I made. I am the world's worst marketer. I did this video. With Seb Goldswain's music in the background, and, and I put a lot of time into it on suffering and First Corinthians. Nobody's seen it. Uh, I put it on my own. Maybe it's because I put it on my own YouTube thing instead of putting it on the dividing line one. Maybe that's what we need to do. Um, but um, uh, And I dropped it, I think, on Friday night, which I guess is the worst time to drop. I, I, I should learn from politics uh, not to do that. Um, but uh, if you get a chance, look that up. I did put it on the Theology Matters microblog, uh, and hopefully it'll be useful to, to folks. But the point was that the software program I was using to make that, I had purchased it. Now you can't purchase those software programs. You have to buy them for a year. It's the subscription thing. And maybe some of you are too young, and that's all you've ever seen. But back in the olden days, you actually bought a program. <laughs> it was, it was, and some companies actually updated it once in a while, too. All right, let's talk with Michael. Michael, you there? Yeah, I'm there. <laughs> all right, there you go. Yeah, sweet. Well, thanks for having me. Um, so I had a question. Um, you had mentioned Calvin saying that Jesus is Altaseos, mm-hmm. right? And now, in, when, in my learning more about the Trinity and things like that, um, thanks to you, actually, uh, challenging us evangelicals to get in it 
and learn. Um, uh, I learned about eternal generation. And one of the things that I found to be somewhat difficult at times was not falling into Jesus getting his godness from the Father, like right. as in he's he's lesser. Um, so how do we how do we? And, and I pull up. It was John five, uh, John five twenty. Um, I just had it on my Bible app. Um, uh, John five uh, twenty six. For the Father has life in Himself, and He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. How do we have the truth that Jesus is eternally generated, but hold also to Calvin? Um, his, as you would say, his strong fighting for Jesus being God of himself. Well, uh, Calvin recognized uh, that the post-Nicene uh, development uh, in Christology uh, tended toward uh, the possibility of subordinationism. And uh, I think he was right about that. And yet... At the same time, uh, there are others that would say, but the relational aspect between father and son has to be uh, recognized in light of Jesus' own words or teachings like John 5, whatever it might be. And so how do you maintain that balance? And, of course, back in 2016, I think is when the uh, eternal uh, subordination of the son uh, issue exploded, uh, and there was you know, all sorts of books being written, and a lot of people were making the argumentation that the way to avoid the eternal subordination of the Son is through a strong emphasis upon the eternal generation of the Son. And yet, at the same time, a lot of the folks were emphasizing that, really, um, I looked, and I may have missed it because I, I didn't, I, I wasn't getting up each morning going, oh, I wonder what new has been published about on the subject. But um, I, I wasn't seeing a lot of people um, recognizing the need uh, that Calvin saw of emphasizing Jesus as autotheos, uh, God in and of himself by nature. Now, part of this is because it seems to me that a lot of current Trinitarian discussions within Western culture, are not done with an eye to taking this message outside of the academy. In other words, there is a anti-apologetic mindset amongst many people. Uh, apologists, for lots of good reasons, are often dismissed from the academy as being imbalanced. It's, it's, almost, it's almost the myth of neutrality has invaded the thinking of many theologians in the idea that um, you have to be pliable to um, allow the possibility of your position being in error, um, like talking about, say, a, a certain biological theory or something like that. You have to apply that to theology as well. And so apologists are seen as being hard-nosed or not truly scholarly or not really willing to follow the facts to the end and, and, and things like that. And so I, I didn't see much in the way of an emphasis um, on their part um, 
on safeguarding the uh, reality of Jesus's eternal existence um, as God, as Altathios. And so, um, how do you maintain that balance? Well, first, I would point out that in, in John chapter 5, um, that context of having life in himself, that's, that's in, the, uh, in the context, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. So, um, I, would, I would really hesitate to try to utilize that to cast light back upon um, non-economic relationships between the Father and the Son. In other words, um, it would seem to me that in John chapter 5, uh, what, is, what is being discussed here uh, is the role that the Son has as the representative of the Father, as the one who can give life, who will judge. That's all in the context of soteriology and economic trinity and revelatory categories and things like that. Um, most of the time, the problem we do have is we are primarily limited to economic categories in biblical revelation, and we're trying to, to cast just a little bit of light out of our own understanding back to long before we came into existence. And sometimes I, I think we... If, if God wanted us to have that kind of light, that he would have given us that kind of light. And, and this may be one of those places where, remember, it's, it's Calvin who said, where, where God makes an end of speaking, we must make an end of speaking. And I've, I've given the example many, many times before of the contrast between Calvin and Edwards at that point, because, uh, you know, I think Calvin was certainly Edwards's equal in mental capacity and ability to speculate and formulate and, and theologize. But Calvin refused to do so in many areas that Edwards did not refuse to do so. And as a result, Edwards got himself into some real hard binds, especially in regards to Adam and Adam's will and things like that. He contradicted himself. He got himself tied in a knot and he couldn't untie himself because he didn't necessarily agree fully or practice, even if he did agree, uh, practice Calvin's motto, we make an end of speaking where God has made an end of speaking. And so maybe that's where uh, Calvin goes, look, uh, the, the scriptures are clear in teaching that Jesus is Yahweh. Jesus identified as Yahweh in num- numerous passages. And that means he is God in and of himself. And so whatever you do with the relationship of father and son, even casting that back into uh, uh, eternity itself, the reality is that it cannot be taken to the point where you can conceptualize the idea of the son not being autotheos, but then becoming theos by distribution from the Father. So he saw that that necessarily leads to some kind of form of subordinationism. You, you can't avoid that. And so, remember, Calvin is dealing apologetically. And you might say, how? Um, Europe was being invaded by Islam at that point in time. And even though Calvin does not deal with Islam 
in any way like Luther did. Um, he is fully aware of, of the fact that it's there. I think he sort of saw some of the beginnings, some of the rumblings of what would become Socinianism over time. Um, and he did deal with, with heretics along those lines. And so he had an apologetic uh, mindset uh, that um, uh, forced him to analyze post-Nicene Christological developments and go, okay, to a point, we can appreciate the statement that there is an eternal relationship between the Father and the Son, but it is eternal and it cannot be logically made a source issue to where you could ever conceive of the Son as not fully God. So he saw what the danger there was, I think maybe in a way that some of the later post-Nicene Fathers did not necessarily um, uh, appreciate, uh, because uh, some of the later errors had not yet, uh, not yet developed. So uh, it's part of it is that, and, and part of it is honestly struggling to recognize when the scripture passages that we're looking at can be meaningfully asserted to cast a light beyond simply the economic trinity, the, the acts of Father, Son, and Spirit in redemption in time, and are actually going back to the relationship that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit in uh, before uh, before creation itself. Um, and f- so, so John 5 would be one of those that I would go, I, I don't know that I could, I wouldn't want to debate that one. I, I wouldn't want to try to, to, to prove that what's being said there uh, is, is relevant to their relationship outside of the Son being sent and being the one who's going to judge and give life and all that. Giving life and judging, that, that's all creation stuff. That's all soteriological stuff. That's all redemption stuff. And so trying to see if that sort of says something about something else is pushing it a little bit too far, in my opinion. Um, Because a lot of my um, learning about him, uh, Jesus being God or Yahweh, is actually kind of through, you know, listening to Muslim apologists and things you've done with other Muslims and and um, them and John eight fifty eight completely ignoring Jesus's call calling himself of ego me, you know. Mm-hmm. So my search of looking into the depths of how he is Yahweh, but also not wanting to um, wanting to understand how that that him being Yahweh is of himself, not a as in he had to get it right, his right, Yahwehness right, right from the Father. Yeah, yeah, that would that would be fundamentally problematic to say that the Father, because when when we talk about Yahwehness, we're talking about the the very being of God shared fully and completely by three divine persons. If there is some kind of a situation to where you can consider. Um, Jesus's participation in the divine nature being mediated to him. Now, I, I realize all of this, even those who, who would emphasize that element of it, are saying it's transtemporal. It's not, it's not a time thing. It, it didn't begin to happen. It just always has been. It's a characteristic of the relationship. Okay, 
that's really hard to be because I, I, I can see how you can go there. It, it's the same. Uh, it's the same issue that C.S. Lewis raises in Mere Christianity. Because remember what he, what he talks about there about the relationship of the father and son is he says if you have two books sitting on a table, the one the top the, the one that is on the top of the other owes its position to the one that's below it. Now take that out of time to where they have always been there. Then it simply becomes a description of their relationship, not supremacy, superiority, derivation, anything else. So the, the key issue to allow a person to talk about eternal generation, the son as the son in a, in a proper relationship with the father, is to emphasize this, this part right here. And that is, however you formulate that, it can never be allowed to bring into the mind a time or a state when that situation was not the case so that the relationship is a characteristic of God's being, not something that comes about through action in time or even action in logic if you wanted to make it transtemporal. So uh, I think that might be one way to sort of uh, put those two things together and be able to to emphasize Jesus as Theos because it is characteristic of the Son um, to have always borne this relationship to the Father in regards to the very nature of God, the very being of God, um, and, that, and that it could never be any other way. Uh, but unfortunately, most discussion of begettal the the emphasis because of our own human language is a, is almost as an act of will, you know something that the father does that results in a change in the being for the son, and that's where the problem would lie. I think that's I think yeah. that's what Calvin saw too. I think that's what Calvin saw too. Okay. Well, hey, thanks thank for you uh, so much. Th- I appreciate it. Thanks for your perseverance in in calling back, and I apologize for the. Uh, I'll apologize on behalf of Comrex as an entire company for having not been able to get you on the first time. So <laughs> thanks for the call, Michael. Have a, have a good day. All right. God bless. Bye-bye. <laughs> yeah, this thing's going to be good. We were talking. We were talking before the program started. That There's a new BIOS update. Just all of a sudden. Maybe that maybe someone at Comrex listens to the program. That must have been what it And they were working feverishly. On getting us a BIOS update. Let's get the BIOS update. See if we can see if we can keep this thing going. We like to be able to talk to our folks without having spending a bunch bunch of money uh, to get a new uh, a new phone system. So you know, we'll go from there. All right. So hey, um, Rich talked to me into doing this program today. So we're supposed to come back again tomorrow. So uh, there you go. Uh, Rich is Rich is getting me a little excited about. He's laughing in the other room. He's getting me a little excited. Uh, about this, uh, this, uh, this, this project. We got some on. toys. The, we've got some toys, yeah. and we were just there's a what do you call that thing? A magic board? Flip, flipboard. Samsung flipboard. Samsung flipboard. And um, I'm I'm really thinking that this is going to allow me to have um, like a papyrus and and blow it up. And then uh, Sinaiticus over here, and you know, then 
bring in a because they they use this is the kind of stuff they use on ESPN. Yeah. To you know you have the rankings. Yeah, and you're stuff. funny. Back, you're like back when it back around. when any of us watch <laughs> sports, I don't any longer except for cycling. Um, and, and so I'm sitting here going, boy, you know. You could have the 1830 Book of Mormon, and then you could have the, the next edition, and the, then the last edition, and you could, you could, and then we could we could have the the, the hypocephalus uh, from uh, from the Book of Abraham, and the, you can turn it upside down, and then read the parts, and this is what it actually. There's a lot of cool stuff. And, oh yeah, and then you draw on it and circle it and move stuff around, and yeah, 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 yeah. So, I'm 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 what. You can put P45 up there? Oh, of course. Yes, of course. Draw on it? <laughs> yeah, we're not drawing on that one. Um, so, yeah. So I'm sort of excited uh, about what, what could happen in the future and could use that same type of thing in, in debates, too. I'm not sure how, if my debate opponent was remote, they would be able to see that unless we just gave them a, a straight-on feed of it or something like that. But well, we'll, I think we could find ways to work it out. Uh, Rich says we'll find a way to work it out. Yeah, we, 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 will, <laughs> we will definitely do that. So, um, but I'm getting sort of excited about it. So uh, we, will, we will press on. Uh, the, the carpet's coming later this week, and uh, so we'll see. Uh, now it, it still takes a lot of time to prep all that stuff. I mean, it's one thing to be able to... You know, do all this stuff, but you got to have all that stuff loaded in. Know how to get it. Have it the right resolution. It's a lot of work, but given our graphically oriented society these days, it might be might be pretty cool. So, so there you go. I'm excited about it. Thanks for watching the program today. We'll be back tomorrow, probably same time, I guess. Two o'clock sounds good. Two o'clock our time. Five o'clock back east. Thanks for watching. We'll see you next time. God bless.